Good morning, Rocky. I was glad you're here. We are indeed starting a new series called God Never Said That. I am Stephen, I'm an elder and part of the teaching team. And of course, if you've listened to me before, you know I'm going to start with an 80s song. December of 1984, there was a song that came out with a social message. At that time, between 1983 and 1985, the world would see a crisis in the country of Ethiopia. The estimates are that during that three-year period, between 400,000 and 500,000 people starved in Ethiopia. This was due to some bad crops, some bad politics. But it was a humanitarian crisis, and British pop stars got together in a single day. A bunch of them sang a song and made a video um, called Do They Know It's Christmas? They called themselves Band-Aid. And that song was a charity song that raised $24 million, what would be $24 million in today's dollars, to send to Africa. And in the U.S., the pop stars looked at what the British pop stars had done and said, that is so sweet, UK, hold my beer. <laughs> and said that they were going to do them one better. They got together, they made a group called USA for Africa. They had sweatshirts, a fancy logo, and they sang a song. Now, trying to be cool in 1984 in my corduroys, I, of course, liked the British one better. But I liked it better just because of my personality, because the British song was pretty direct contrasting what it's like to celebrate Christmas in luxury in England versus people starving, one of the lyrics was, the Christmas bells that they hear there are the clanging chimes of doom. Well, tonight, thank God it's them instead of you. And they encourage you to give. And now the U.S. one, which also did great, it raised $151 million for Africa. It was a little fluffier, you know? It was a little more emotional. We are the who make a brighter day. It's true. We make a brighter day, just you and me. Aren't we awesome? <laughs> so, of course, I was attracted to the British one more. But in that song, in the U.S. song, there were some references to God, which there weren't in the, in the, in the British song, there were in the, in the U.S. song. And one of the lyrics that was sung by Willie Nelson and Al Jarreau was, As God has shown us by turning stone to bread, and so we all must lend a helping hand. So the implication there is that somewhere in the Bible, maybe in the map, God turned stone to bread to feed a bunch of hungry people, right? Except that isn't what happened in the Bible. So in the Bible, it talks about... Um, it talks about Jesus being tempted. So after he was baptized in the Jordan, he was led away to the wilderness for 40 days, and he didn't eat during that time, and he was directly tempted by the devil to give up the mission that God had given him. So let's see what happened with the bread. This is part of that temptation. Luke 4, verses 1 to 4, says Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, turn the stone to bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. So, Although this song seems to imply that people kind of go, yeah, yeah, that's got to be turning stone to bread in there somewhere, it really didn't happen. In fact, it is exactly the opposite of what is there. Now, I don't think this song was bad at all because the Bible tells us over and over to, um, 
that we should be feeding the poor and taking care of the poor and people who can't take care of themselves. I could spend 45, 50 minutes doing all the references, but I'm not Al Hassler. So I'm going to go ahead and move on with this one reference and <laughs> say how the Bible really teaches us to, to feed the poor. In fact, Jesus himself was talking about Judgment Day when the righteous and the wicked will be separated. And one of the characteristics of the righteous, he says, is, I'm calling you righteous because when you saw me without food, you fed me. When you saw me without drink, you gave me something to drink. And continuing in Matthew 25, it said, we read, it says, Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you, sick or in prison, and go to visit you? And the king, which is God, which is Jesus, will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And this is not the only reference over and over and over. The Bible teaches us to take care of the poor. And this is exactly what the song was doing. But... There was that one little part of scripture that they quote they completely incorrectly. And why I think this is a little bit challenging is I think whenever people tell you something that isn't true, the best way to make it believable is to contain a little nugget of truth. A little nugget that sounds like something that should be true. God turns something red that sounds roughly biblical. Whenever I was a graduate student teacher, I, you know, I had to give multiple choice tests, and I had to make up the fake answers, and a lot of times I'd give a fake answer, and then I'd give some kind of gobbledygook about, well, this is right, because you know that, and I would make something up. It was true, it was irrelevant, and it made the question wrong, but it was still true, right? So I think having a nugget of truth in a, wrapped in something that is not correct makes it more believable. So I think it's important for us to know, what does the Bible say? Which is why we are starting this new series called God Never Said That. God Never Said That. And I love going first because I get to pick the topics and Adam gets to deal with the fallout, right? <laughs> no matter what he was planning, I said, oh, no, no, I thought I'm going to Adam. Um, actually, Adam is exchanged because, like, there is, he would never put the burden on me. He would always put it on himself to, to adjust. So today I'm going to talk about two things that I've heard people attribute to God. And I don't think they're backed up by the scripture. Two things in our God never said that. And those two things are, should have, should have them come up. There we go. Two things come up. One is, and this was actually said to me by someone, the Bible is full of scientific errors because it says that a whale is really a fish. Yeah, I know. So, and then the other thing is a really common saying, which the Lord helps those who help themselves. So those are the two things I want to talk about. So let's talk about the first one. Did God really say that a whale was a fish? Now, why am I talking about this? One thing, I think, you know, I would have to refund your ticket money if I didn't talk about something a little bit like science, right? <laughs> I would have to give you a refund because it's me and I need to talk about science. But also because I had a friend say to me, you know the Bible can't be believed because it says a whale is a fish. And we all know that a whale is a mammal. So I thought I would talk about this as an example, because I think people will talk to us a lot of times and say, well, you know, the Bible is riddled with contradictions and riddled with anti-science. And sometimes when you explore further, you find that it's not. You know, you find that what they're thinking isn't true. And yeah, I don't think you should be hostile to people. I think a lot of times they're just 
they're just trying to find an excuse and you should be able to talk to it. But I want to say to you today, you don't have to be scared of this, right? So that's why I'll spend a little bit of time on this example. Now, this whole whale fish thing comes from the book of Jonah, which is in the Old Testament. Jonah was a prophet of God, and God said to him directly, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, and the Assyrians were not known for being super loving people. They would not have made me of the world. Right? They were very violent. They were known to bring the heads of the conquered to rot on pole. I mean, it was a very, very violent culture. And God said to Jonah, I want you to go there, go to them and tell them, because of your wickedness, I'm going to destroy you in 40 days by letting you be conquered, unless you repent. Now, Jonah said, yeah, I think I'm going to get killed doing that. And so what Jonah did, even though he had heard the direct word of God, was he went to Joppa, bought a ticket on a boat, going the exact opposite direction toward Tarshish. And now, I think Jonah is a great book to read, because there's a lot of things that are um, pretty interesting in here, especially the fourth chapter. But in the first chapter, and I'm kind of putting things together from the first chapter, not in this order, it sounds to what, by what we read that Jonah walks on, says, I am a prophet of the God who made the world, and I am running away from him, and I'm going to go take a nap. So he goes to the bottom of the boat, and as they're trapped sailing to Tarshish, a giant storm comes up. A life-threatening storm, and the, soul, uh, the people on the boat are like casting lots, rolling dice, and they all point toward Jonah, and they go wake him up, and he says, yeah, it probably is me because I'm running from God. I think we're having this storm because God is saying, you must do what I told you. So Jonah says, the best solution is to throw me over. And uh, because, you know, Jonah's God is making the thunder and the storm, they're, a little, they're like, uh, we're a little afraid to kill the prophet of God. <laughs> he says, no, no, it's me, I promise you they're okay. And so with reluctance, the sailors throw him overboard, and the storm immediately stops, and the storm stops very quickly. Now, Jonah is in the sea and would have drowned, except that it says that God sent a great fish to swallow him. Jonah stays in the fish, in the belly of the fish, the great fish, three days and three nights. For those of you who know the story of Jesus, three days and three nights under the sea. But he stays, and then the fish vomits him onto the beach, and he goes back to his home. And after he goes back to his home, God talks to him again and says, go to Nineveh. Um, and he goes to Nineveh, and they actually repent. And book four of Jonah is also a book to read because Jonah gets furious that they repented. He wanted the hellfire. He wanted the brimstone. And Jonah is furious, and it's got to teach him a lesson about forgiveness. So that's a really good book to read. But every time in Jonah, in Jonah it says, great fish. It never says, well, it only says great fish in the actual book of Jonah. It's Hebrew is Dag Gadol, which I said totally to impress him here. <laughs> Dag Gadol is what it says in Hebrew. And now Jesus himself refers to this incident in Matthew chapter um, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, where he says, he's talking about himself, and he says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, meaning dead. So he uses Jonah, and sometimes the part where Jesus spoke, which was written in Greek, 
That sentence in some versions of the Bible, actually none of the ones that I actually turn to, some versions use the word wail there because the Greek word is ketos and ketos later, after the time of Jesus came to mean wail. So there are some versions that say great fish. I think like really old versions say sea monster ones as whale. It's all because of this Greek word ketos that only later came to be known as whale. So to me, in Jonah itself, it never says... Well, it only says great fish. Now, why am I going on about this? It's because I'm so surprised that this would be my friend's objection. Right? This is your objection? Your objection isn't that he lived three days? Your objection is that they call it fish? But I think it's important to understand whenever we're reading a historical book, like the Bible, we are reading its ancient, right? And the way to interpret a document that was written a long time ago is by understanding what the people at the time would have meant by the language, right? Even in our lifetimes, words have changed meaning, right? When I was, back in my day, when we said sick, it didn't mean good, right? I mean, we all know in our experience that words change their meaning. What you see, even when you read certain books, is words that before like had, could mean something either positive or negative now mean only negative, they really do change over time. And, and the amount of time that was changed, I mean, this, these things were written 2,500 years ago. So these words do change meaning, and it doesn't make the original long, and it's certainly not a scientific statement. Plus, this whole thing of how you categorize something, it cannot be to make a dessert and I went to the I went to the grocery store and I was looking for this thing. Right? Right? So I'm gonna need a little bit of audience participation to help. This is maraschino cherries. And although they are heavily, heavily processed, they do come from a cherry. And a cherry is what type of food? We call it a fruit. A fruit. Excellent. And what do we call that vessel that those things are in? What's holding them? Jar. Jar. Right. So I was on the aisle of the grocery store that was labeled canned and jarred fruit. That's where I was, right? So I went, I was looking and looking and I couldn't find it, which is not unusual for me when it's on that aisle. But I kept looking and looking and I finally asked for help and they said, oh, we put that on the aisle of dessert toppings. Okay, so I went over to where they had like purchase syrup and all this and there they were. Now, that grocery store wasn't wrong because that's how they organized their aisles, right? They weren't wrong. It's just a different way to think about it. If they were thinking about it in terms of how it functions instead of what it is, right? It doesn't make one or the other wrong. It's just a different way to categorize something, right? There really is no wrong way to do something in categories except, except there is one thing that's wrong. My system of dealing with mail is to make a pile of <laughs> it is 100%. Other than my error, that is, there is really no right or wrong to how you categorize something, right? The reason the Bible would not have noted that or thought about whether it's a mammal, the word mammal didn't come into existence until 1758 with Linnaeus, right? Linnaeus started making the classification system 
they wouldn't have thought about that. I like to think about two guys out on the water, two guys out on the water back in biblical times looking at the whale. Hey, that fish that can eat us, is it, is it nursing its young? Look at that. My whole world is upside down because it's not a fish. Anymore. I don't think that would happen. I also kind of feel like it's possible the older system might have a little more face value, a little more face validity, a little more logic. Imagine if you were an alien coming to the planet for the first time and thinking, what is this thing called whale? What is this whale? What grocery aisle should we, how should we organize and think about a whale? We would, um, yeah, there we go. If you were putting it at a, at a grocery aisle, would you put it on the aisle with the sharks and the sailfish? Or would you put it on the aisle with the mice? I mean, logically, you would put it by the things that live in the water, right? I mean, this is not a question of God making a science of the air. This is a question of how ancient people categorize things. You know, it lives, it lives in the water. It's a fish, it's a big fish, it's a dog a dog, right? But as I say, uh, the thing to me, um, the thing to me, this, this issue of is it a whale or fish is so incidental to what God is trying to tell us in this book. The book of Jonah is about forgiveness, right? The book of Jonah is about God forgiving people even at the last minute. The, and the other message is that you can't escape God's will, right? He tried to throw himself overboard, and you can't escape God's will. So, um, for me, whenever I see people doubting things about the science, you know, I believe, historically, the thing that is so clearly true about the Bible is the death and resurrection of Jesus. That if I believe the Son of God, that if I believe Jesus can be raised from the dead, I clearly can also believe that God intervened in Jonah with some kind of fish. That's, that small potato is relative to Jesus, the Son of God, coming down to earth, living as a man, dying and uh, resurrected. So for me, and I, did, I, did I try to argue with this friend? Not really. I talked a little bit about it. But for me, but for you, the thing I want you to know is you don't have to be afraid when people say the Bible's full of contradictions to anti-science. A lot of times when you start looking at it and reading it as you read the Bible or any other historical work, you realize we're just applying a modern lens to things that is not the way you interpret things are historical. So I enjoyed that one. And now let's talk about idea number two. And that is, the Lord helps those who help themselves. The Lord helps those who help themselves. It's a pretty common saying, but I think God never said that. Because I think the implication of that sentence is, don't bother God with this. Help yourself. Solve yourself. Don't involve God. Right? Which I don't think is what the Bible says at all. But, I want to be fair, right? I want to say, why might someone come to this idea of the Lord helps those who help themselves? Well, there are a couple of verses that support it, a couple of passages of Scripture. One is, there is certainly a warning against laziness. In Proverbs chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, it says, How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber. to not be lazy, 
But I don't think that's the same as the Lord helps those who help themselves. And also, there is an instruction that if you are able-bodied, you should not be a burden to others. There is an instruction that if you're able-bodied, you should not be a burden to others. Paul, when he is coming to talk to the Thessalonians, he's been there before, he is telling them, and Paul is a missionary, right? But along the way, he also earns his own, he earns money so he can pay for himself. Even though the people he visited were gladly giving a love offering, he doesn't do that. Let me read what it says. It says um, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we, that's Paul and his missionary partner, command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our advantage. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who was unwilling to work shall not eat. Right? So there is this thing about don't be idle. Don't take advantage, because there were people there taking advantage of the Christian community's willingness to help out people who were in need. And he's warning them not to take advantage of that. And I do want to put in a little plug to say, I think that scripture that I just read has nothing to do with politics, and with some politicians use it. This is about in the Christian community, when you're helping people out, don't take advantage of that love and that charity by refusing to work and getting in people's business. Although the Bible clearly tells us to help people who need help and tells the Christian community to do so. So again, to me, this phrase, the Lord helps those who help themselves, is saying we should solve our problems without involving or bothering God about it. And I just think this could not be further from the message that the Scripture has. God tells us that he is a God that has plans for us that are good. They are gifts from him, not things we earn or do ourselves. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And Psalm 34, 19 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And James 1.17 reminds us that every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God gives us good gifts. He cares about us. Not only does he that, but he tells us that he will give us strength, not that we should use our own strength. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God also, in Philippians 4.13, says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. God doesn't tell us to go off and solve our own problems. He tells us to rely on him and to be without fear. And I know this is kind of a list of scriptures, but I think the scripture is so strong in this, I want to list them for you. Isaiah 41.3 says, For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, Fear not, I am the one who helps you. And Philippians 4.6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
The Lord helps those who help themselves. That's just not the picture presenting the scripture of God. In fact, it says directly, we are not to rely on ourselves, but we are to rely on God. 2 Corinthians 1.9 says, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Proverbs 3, verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. John 14, 5, I just love this. The idea of a vine and branches being inseparable, this is how we should be with God. It says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It is not the Lord helps those who helps themselves. My mom has always said to me, that this is that, that, that expression incorrect. She says, rather than the Lord helps those who help themselves, it should be the Lord helps those who humble themselves. First Peter 5, verse 6 to 7 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties, all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. This is the picture we see over and over in Scripture. It's such a distinction to Hinduism, to Islam, the idea that our God cares about us and knows about us personally and loves us enough personally to die in our stead. Such a different picture. It is not a picture of the Lord helps those who help themselves. And now, I'm going to ask the band to come out as I keep talking, but I want to say it's easy for me to get up here and say this, right? It's not about the world, but this is a hard area for me. I just want to fix it. When there's a problem, I want to fix it myself. Okay, God, I'm going to go do this myself. I'm going to go read my Bible every day. That'll fix my spiritual condition. I'm going to do this every day. That'll fix my spiritual condition. I'm just going to work and work as hard as I can. This situation that's like bothering me, I'm going to work it out. This is not what God says. God says that we should care about him. One of my favorite passages of scripture is Psalm 23. It's a metaphor where God calls himself a shepherd. And my wonderful wife taught me something just two weeks ago. In this, in this set of verses, can I go out? In this set of That is the protection that the shepherd 
shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And even when I want to do wrong things, he leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. When I stray, your staff and enemies I don't see. You have taken care of. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And when that life is over, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. This is the picture that is presented by our God. It is a God who is with us every step of the way, like a shepherd is with their sheep. And this is what I find the most important thing of today's discussion, is to remember that God is with us always. First step, of course, if you have not placed your faith in Christ, we're happy to talk to you about that. You can talk to me, talk to Al, talk to the prayer team that will be up at the end.